Hi, it's Amy Siskin of The Weekly List and author of the book, The List, and welcome to episode 38 of The Weekly List Podcast, which accompanies week 120 on The Weekly List website, theweeklylist.org, and corresponds to the week ended March 2nd, 2019. Welcome. Before we get started this week, I want to kind of take stock of where we are and notice something, that here we are 120 weeks in. One of the reasons I started to keep a list was the experts in authoritarianism had warned that we would start to normalize things in the chaos. There was a tweet sent at the end of this week by Trump, and I'm going to read it to you. It's first quoting the Trump Organization, which is saying the landscape framework of Trump Scotland comes close to ideal, and it shows a picture and some other verbiage. And then Trump says, quote, very proud of perhaps the greatest golf course anywhere in the world. Also furthers UK relationship exclamation point. Now this sets off all sorts of alarm bells. (laughs) Let's start by saying that Trump is supposedly fenced off from the Trump organization. So it's strange that he is quoting his organization. It's also strange that he's tying in what the Trump organization does to U.S. relations with the U.K. This sets off emoluments clause alarm bells. This sets off alarm bells for our foreign policy. And this is the kind of thing, if it happened in November 2016, when we were still fresh enough and not exhausted and anxious and basically having PTSD from waking up every morning and seeing, waiting for what comes next on our Twitter feed, people would be outraged. This Saturday, as we ended the week, it barely got noticed. And I just mentioned that just to make us aware of what we have internalized, what we've gotten used to, how exhausted we are from this fight over two years in, And also to warn us how important it is that we stay engaged for what we're losing, for what we're letting slip by, and how he has been up until now getting away with it. I think I tweeted this and believe all this that is saving us at this point from falling into the abyss of authoritarianism are the investigations being conducted by Congress, Mueller, and the attorney generals of various states. Those are extremely important and one thing we're going to be talking about, Michael Cohen and his testimony, even testi- even Michael Cohen, who knows Trump arguably as well as anybody we'll be hearing from, having worked for him for 10 years and in a very close-knit capacity, warned us that even if Trump loses, he'll never leave. So again, folks, just I'm pointing this out before we go into what happened during the week, just as a kind of timestamp of where we are and what we need to be thoughtful of as we continue this fight. So this week was interesting because as luck would have it, I don't think it was luck, Elijah Cummings scheduled to have public testimony with Michael Cohen on Wednesday, which was coincidentally, not coincidentally, the day of Trump's second summit with Kim Jong-un in Vietnam. And as luck would have it, uh, all eyes were on Michael Cohen and no eyes were on Trump and Kim Jong-un. And the former was eye-opening, awakening for our country, the first public testimony we've had since James Comey. And the latter in Hanoi was a disaster for Trump. Although some people say the fact that he got nothing done is probably better for our country, but that's the way we're looking at things now. There's a lot of news this week, and as most weeks, a lot of things that are important got lost in the chaos, which is why it's so important that you're listening to this to see what you missed. But we had those two major events, and then we closed out the week with this eerie experience at CPAC, which we're going to talk about, which used to be a way for conservatives to kind of share ideas and bat them around, and now has become a Trump cult with fringe figures in the GOP finding themselves up on stage speaking for Trump. Trump has subsumed the CPAC as well as the RNC. So if there was any period of time where we thought the Republicans and the Republican Party, as it was, the old Republican Party might push back on him, I think we're seeing the chances of that become nil. I want to start out this week by an interesting observation by the Southern Poverty Law Center, which notes that since Trump 
has taken office, eight Republicans with openly white supremacist, nativist, anti-LGBT, or anti-government ties won seats in Congress in the midterms. It's just notable because this is happening now in the light of day and being normalized. In addition to those eight, 10 other Republicans who also courted hate and extremism won their primaries but lost in general elections. We're going to talk more about everyday racism, but that is the kind of stew that we're living in. On Saturday, the Washington Post reported ahead of the second summit with Kim Jong-un, Trump Trump has changed the definition of success from denuclearization to, quote, no rush, as long as North Korea maintains a testing moratorium. Trump also claimed success in ratcheting down rhetoric with North Korea, which he had himself inflamed. (laughs) Reportedly, he may look to create a spectacle to distract from Michael Cohen's public testimony on Wednesday. On Sunday, Trump tweeted, quote, We will be having one of the biggest gatherings in the history of Washington, D.C. on July 4th, adding fireworks, displays, entertainment, and an address by your favorite president, me, exclamation point. I'll never get old. It will never get old when he does that your favorite president, me thing. It was unclear what Trump meant as a major 4th of July parade already takes place in D.C. each year. A spokesperson for the Washington's mayor uh, told CNN, quote, like you, we are still assessing what will be different. Trump also tweeted, quote, the only collusion with the Russians was with crooked Hillary Clinton and the Democratic National Committee, adding, quote, and where's the server that the DNC refused to give to the FBI? Here we are, folks, 120 weeks in, and he's still using crooked Hillary Clinton. Last I checked, she wasn't running. Trump also retweeted an earlier tweet saying, quote, highly respected Senator Richard Burr, head of the Senate Intelligence, said in exclamation point, excuse me, in in capital letters, we have found no collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. On Sunday, House Intelligence Chair Adam Schiff told this week, Democrats will do whatever is necessary to make the Mueller report public including, if need be, to call in Mueller to be te- to testify. On Sunday, Steve Bannon told Face a Nation that 2019 will be the most vitriolic year in American politics since the Civil War, citing the Southern District of New York investigation and Democrats weaponizing the Mueller probe. On Sunday, House Judiciary Chair Gerald Nadler said in a radio interview that Trump and his conduct are, quote, the greatest threat to the democratic system and to the constitutional government since the Civil War. Okay, folks, so that's two people in a row on the Sunday talk shows invoking the Civil War. I point that out because we talked about this last week, uh, all the times at that point it had up until then been the Republicans, but all the times they're mentioning coup, Civil War, time to buy guns. We're going to talk about this later in the episode as well, but there's clearly a pattern of our country being so divided now and calls for violence and, and people being put in dangerous situations, something very important to pay attention to. On Sunday, Republican Senator John Cornyn tweeted a quote by fascist dictator Benito Mussolini, who had ties to socialism. Cornyn later tried to play it off as a critique of the Democratic Socialists, not quoting a fascist. (laughs) On Sunday's Reuters reported, Russian state TV listed U.S. military facilities Moscow would target in the event of a nuclear strike, adding that with weapons being developed, Russia could hit them in less than five minutes. So this is what's on Russia TV. Of course, Trump doesn't comment. Of course, last week we talked on in Putin's State of the Nation. He talked about attacking the United States. On Monday, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov told a Russian news agency that Trump has asked for Moscow's advice in dealing with North Korea at the second summit this Wednesday and Thursday. Lavrov, who is visiting Vietnam this week, added, quote, the U.S. Is, e- is even asking our advice, our views on this or that scenario of how the summit in Hanoi could pan out, which, again, matches with reporting we've seen that Trump trusts Russia and Putin more than he trusts U.S. intelligence. 
On Monday, BBC reported concerns have been raised that Peskova, daughter of Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov, is interning for a right-wing French politician at the European Union, and she will therefore be working at the European Union. On Monday, in an interview with CNN, former state leader, Senate leader, excuse me, Harry Reid, said that in the age of Trump, he wishes for George W. Bush, saying, quote, every day, he and I had our differences, but no one ever questioned his patriotism. Reid said he did not think the Senate would go along with impeachment, but added, quote, I don't think there would be a backlash because the vast majority of people know something is wrong with Trump. Reid also said former FBI Director James Comey did not do enough to stop Russia in 2016, saying, quote, I watched Comey in the halls being so self-righteous. I almost wanted to shout, where were you when we needed you? On Monday, Trump attacked Reid. What a surprise. Tweeting, he got thrown out of he got thrown out and, quote, is working hard to put a good spin on his failed career, adding led through lies and deception and was replaced by crying Chuck Schumer. Of course, Reed stepped down. He didn't get thrown out, but that facts never stop us. On Monday, Trump tweeted, quote, oil prices getting too high, urging the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, please relax and take it easy. World cannot take a price hike fragile. So Trump believes that how the world oil markets move are based on his Twitter feed. On Monday, in a radio interview, former Federal Reserve Chair Janet Yellen said Trump shows a, quote, lack of understanding of basic economics, citing his stance on reducing trade deficits with China and others. Yellen also noted that Trump pressuring the Fed is unhealthy, saying, quote, I think it does have an impact, especially if conditions in the U.S. for some reason were to deteriorate, it could undermine confidence in the Fed. So asterisk that undermine confidence in another U.S. institution, which Trump is doing with the FBI, with the Department of Justice, the CIA, the list goes on to and add the Federal Reserve. Speaking of which, on Tuesday, the U.S. Courts of Appeal for the D.C. Circuit rejected the Department of Justice's attempt to overturn AT&T's merger with Time Warner. Trump's DOJ had wanted Time Warner to spin off CNN, the frequent target of Trump's ire. On Monday, Politico reported two House committees, Finance and Intelligence, will target Trump's personal finances, crossing Trump's stated red line of examining his personal finances. The committees will examine why Deutsche Bank would lend to the Trump Organization when other banks would not, and given Deutsche's ties to laundering Russian money, whether Russia was involved. On Saturday, now we're going to get into everyday racism for this week. On Saturday, several University of Mississippi basketball players kneeled on the court during the national anthem to show solidarity with counter-protesters amid a rally on their campus in support to a monument for the Confederacy. (laughs) Good Lord. On Sunday, while accepting an award at the Oscars, Spike Lee said of the 2020 election, quote, let's all be on the right side of history, make the moral choice between love versus hate, let's do the right thing. Of course, Trump couldn't let that go, anything to do with entertainment and dissing him. On Monday, Trump tweeted in response, quote, be nice if Spike Lee could read his notes when doing his racist hit on your president, who has done more for African Americans than almost any other prez, exclamation point. AP reported Alicia Dexter, a black woman, will replace Goodloe Sutton as publisher and editor of the Democrat Reporter. Sutton, who had been in that role since the 1960s, will retain ownership of the newspaper. We talked about him last week in his KKK article. On Monday, Maryland Democrat Mary Ann Lasanti apologized to the Maryland Black Caucus for using the N-word to refer to Prince George's district while out after hours with colleagues at a cigar bar. On Tuesday, Virginia First Lady Pat Northam handed out raw cotton to two 8th grade students on a mansion tour and asked them to imagine being enslaved and having to pick the crop. She later apologized. 
again, the Northams have decided to stay, or more, um, the governor, Northam, has decided to stay, and the stuff is going to continue, folks. <laughs> he should have stepped down. He's still there. His wife is handing out cotton to black students. On Wednesday, Detroit Free Press reported a police officer, Gary Steele, was fired after posting a racially insensitive Snapchat video after stopping a 23-year-old woman for an expired driver's license. Excuse me, expired license plate. On Wednesday, Daily, P Daily Beast reported Mark Short, VP Pence's incoming chief of staff, in a college column maligned people living with HIV and AIDS, saying it spread largely as a result of, quote, repugnant homosexual intercourse. Fairbanks, Alaska Mayor Jim Matherly vetoed a measure passed by the city council, which would have extended protections in employment, housing, and public accommodations to the LGBTQ community. Because why should they be protected? That apparently bothers the mayor. On Monday, the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. I love how the, this is the Protection Act. Um, requiring doctors to provide care to infants who survive an abortion or attempted abortion got 53 votes, just seven shy of the 60 needed to advance in the Senate. So just, again, a rise of extremism against woman, Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> on Monday, Alva Johnson, an event planner on Trump's 2016 campaign, said in a lawsuit that Trump kissed her on the lips without her consent before a rally in Tampa on August 24, 2016. More than a do dozen women have publicly accused Trump of touching them in an inappropriate way. Johnson is the first new charge since he took office. In a news conference, the accusations got little, excuse me, in the news chaos, the accusations got very little media coverage this week. Press Secretary Sarah Sanders said in a statement the accusation was, quote, absurd on its face and, quote, this never happened and is directly contradicted by multiple highly credible eyewitnesses. How do we know there are eyewitnesses? On Tuesday, an attorney for lawyer Alan Dershowitz asked in a letter to the U.S. District Court of Appeals that Jeffrey Epstein's sex abuse case be held behind closed doors and without the media having access. On Monday, Axios reported, according to the Department of Health and Human Services, documents, thousands of unaccompanied migrants' children have been reportedly sexually assaulted in U.S. custody. The ORR received over 4,500 complaints from October 2014 to July 2018, with a record number of complaints totaling 514 for the second quarter of 2018. On Thursday, in a letter to the DHS's Inspector General and Office for Civil Rights and Civil Liberties, three immigration advocacy groups claimed infants as young as five months are being detained by ICE. The group said there have been, quote, an alarming increase in the number of infants in ICE custody in Delay, Texas facility, now at least nine under the age of one, and urged the department to intervene immediately. On Friday, 10 members of Proud Boys appeared in a New York Supreme Court facing charges of assault and rioting for an attack outside the Metropolitan Republican Club in Manhattan in Week 101. Prosecutors recommended as much as a year in jail. Two Proud Boys have already pled guilty. In Week 19, the new head of the Proud Boys was named a volunteer by Roger Stone in court and also stood behind Trump at a rally. So again, 10 of them are in front of the court Friday, two have already pled guilty, are going to jail, and they're hanging out with Roger Stone and Donald Trump. On Saturday, Politico reported Qatar hired Stuart Jolly, a former Trump campaign staffer, as a D.C. lobbyist. Qatar also has former Trump campaign manager Corey Lewandowski's firm on monthly retainer. On Monday, NBC News reported the number of Americans taking the State Department exam to become diplomats has declined in the first two years of the Trump regime and now is at its lowest level since 2008. On Monday, 58 former U.S. national security officials, both Democrat and Republican, said in a letter to the Trump regime they are aware of, quote, no emergency 
that remotely justifies diverting funds to build a border wall. On Tuesday, the Senate voted to confirm, and this is an important story, folks, because these are the norms that we're losing track of, you know, other than the fact of these ex-officials on both sides writing letters to Trump. This is an important one. On Tuesday, the Senate voted to confirm Eric Miller as a judge on the country's most liberal appeals court in Washington state without the consent of either home state senator known as Blue Slips. This is the first time a nominee has been confirmed without the support of at least one home state senator. Senator Patty Murray, who's one of the two in Washington state, called it a, quote, dangerous first and accused the GOP of, quote, bending the will of Trump. Miller will sit on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Remember, we've talked about them. The frequent subject of Trump's ire for its left leaning and decisions against him as well as the court likely to hear the appeal of his national emergency. On Thursday, the Senate confirmed Andrew Wheeler, a former coal lobbyist and D.C. insider to lead the Environmental Protection Agency. I have to stop here, folks, and I've been talking about this. I know Pruitt was terrible, and we spent a lot of times, and our media was very obsessed with finding all of his corruption and all the things he was doing wrong, which were numerous. This guy is even more scary because he's equally has a vendetta against everything that protects our environment, but he's actually good at his job in terms of getting things taken away. And this is a scary thing that, again, in the chaos gets very little attention. Wheeler has been acting commissioner since Scott Pruitt resigned amid ethics violations. In his time serving already, Wheeler has sought to repeal environmental regulations, undoing much of the Obama-era legacy, and promoted coal. The regime described it as an effort to combat regulatory overreach. On Wednesday, you know how we talked about Trump encouraging Republicans to investigate voter fraud? Well, we found some real election fraud. On Wednesday, McCray Dallas, the North Carolina political operative who worked for Republican Mark Harris, who thought he won North Carolina District 9th, but then again, we're redoing that. Um, But he did work for Mark Harris, that candidate. He was indicted on seven felonies amid allegations of ballot tampering in the 9th Congressional District. On Friday, Politico reported that state officials are opting for 2020 voting machines in Georgia, Delaware, and Philadelphia, and other jurisdictions. These machines pose unacceptable risks and could be hacked by Russia or China. This is happening, folks. They just voted on it in Georgia, went along party lines in their version of the assembly, and this is moving forward and getting very little attention. The new machines print out a slip of paper with the vote displayed in text, in plain text and embedded in a barcode. Security experts warn hackers could manipulate the barcodes without voters noticing. Politico reported Democratic Party chairs in four early states want 2020 candidates to sign a pact to avoid waging social media disinformation warfare against each other, citing reports of disinformation in week 119. On Monday, Monday, in an interview with, with MSNBC's Ahmed Mohidlin, Jim Walden, the attorney for former Cambridge Analytica employee Brittany Kaiser, said when she spoke to Mueller's team, they asked her extensively about data and data mining by the company. He also said the RNC and NRA exported their voter data to Cambridge Analytica to use in analyzing the last 6% of voters but that the Trump campaign did not want to be publicly associated with the company. Kaiser flew to New York to meet with then-campaign manager Corey Lewandowski. Bannon, who was a stakeholder in Cambridge Analytica along with the Mercers, did coordinating with the Trump campaign. So again, that's one of the things I've always been saying. Watch Deutsche Bank, watch Cambridge Analytica. On Monday, the Wall Street Journal reported the Trump Organization donated $191,000 in profits from foreign governments to the U.S. Treasury, a 30% increase from the $150,000 of last year. It was unclear how profits were calculated. So I'm sure they're paying more than they should, aren't you? 
On Monday, the Wall Street Journal reported the House Judiciary Committee is investigating whether Matthew Whitaker perjured himself in his Week 117 testimony on if Trump asked him to put Jeffrey Berman in charge of the SDNY investigation. On Monday, in federal court in D.C., Paul Manafort's attorneys asked for leniency on sentencing in light of his age, he turned 70 in April, and health concerns, adding he is not a hardened criminal. On Friday, in federal court in Virginia, Manafort's attorneys again asked for leniency, saying Manafort is loyal, compassionate, idealistic man who has learned a harsh lesson. Those, uh, they, <laughs> none of those words really, I mean, loyal maybe to Trump, um, yeah, the rest, I don't know, those words don't seem to go with Paul Manafort for me. I'm not feeling it. On Tuesday, prosecutors asked the federal judge in the Maria Butina case to delay her sentencing, saying she is still cooperating. The judge agreed to wait until March 28th to decide the date for a sentencing hearing. On Tuesday, the House Oversight Committee voted to subpoena the Trump regime over family separation at the southern border and what will be the first subpoenas of the new Congress. The Justice Department, Homeland Security, and Health and Human Services will be subpoenaed. Chairman Elijah Cummings said the committee members have been seeking documents for seven months. So now they have power to subpoena, and he will be handing them out (laughs) like candy. On Tuesday, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled unanimously against Roger Stone associate Andrew Miller, finding no flaw in the Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein's appointment of Mueller. On Tuesday, Twitter permanently suspended Trump supporter and far-right activist Jacob Wall after he told USA Today he planned to set up fake accounts in an attempt to manipulate the 2020 presidential election. Wohl told the Washington Post that creating a false account was largely a, quote, intellectual exercise to gauge whether the account could be used to impact liberal women. And raise your hand if you think Jacob Wohl has ever had an intellectual exercise. Anyways, we're, we're glad to have him off Twitter. Makes it that much nicer. On Tuesday, Trump ally Representative Matthew Getz, a congressman, tweeted a threat at Michael Cohen the day before his congressional testimony, saying, Hey, Michael Cohen, do your wife and father-in-law know about your girlfriends? Speaker Nancy Pelosi tweeted a statement, quote, I encourage all members to be mindful of comments on social media and to the press, warning, quote, efforts to intimidate family members or pressure witnesses will not be tolerated. Later Tuesday, Getz tweeted, quote, Speaker, I want to get to the truth, too, around, quote, liars like Cohen, adding, quote, it was not my intent to threaten, as some believe I did. I'm deleting the tweet, and I'm sorry. On Wednesday, Daily Peace reported the Florida Bar opened an investigation into whether Getz violated professional conduct rules by threatening Cohen ahead of his congressional testimony. A staff writer for The Atlantic reported Getz took a call from Trump, who was in Hanoi at the time, to discuss the Cohen investigation. That reporter overheard him saying, quote, I was happy to do it for you. Just keep killing it. On Tuesday, Cohen met behind closed doors with the Senate Intelligence Committee. Senators from both parties said the testimony made a strong impression on them. Ranking Democrat Mark Warner said, quote, when this investigation started, I said it may be the most important thing I'm involved in. Nothing that I've heard today dissuades me from that view. On Tuesday, Hillary Clinton, who worked as an attorney during for the House Judiciary Committee during the Nixon impeachment inquiry, advocated for more public hearings to help the public understand what happened. Amen. I have to say what we're going to hear about from Cohen was just so refreshing to finally start to hear things beyond what's getting reported by our media. And I'm hoping again that all these committees will make more public and have more public hearings for for us to know what they know in a meaningful way. On Tuesday, Speaker Pelosi said before voting to block Trump's national emergency, quote, the resolution is not about politics. It's not about partisanship. It's about patriotism. 
It's about the Constitution. We hear a lot of this now, a lot of this theme that this is not politics, this is about saving our country. Pelosi also asked, quote, is your oath of office to Donald Trump or is it to the Constitution of the United States? The resolution of disapproval of his national emergency passed 245 to 182 in Congress with 13 Republicans voting along with Democrats. On Tuesday, the White House press corp was evicted from a war. <laughs> now we're switching to Hanoi, to Trump's summit in Hanoi. On Tuesday, the White House press corp was evicted from its workplace at the Malaya Hotel. NBC News reported a Vietnamese security guard barked, you must go now, at members of the press in the lobby. The move was highly unusual since the White House had approved of and supported the use of this space for reporters. It was unclear who was behind evicting the reporters, whether it was North Korea, Vietnam, the U.S., or a combination of these governments. On Wednesday, in an evening interaction with the media, when a reporter asked Trump for his reaction to Cohen's written testimony, Trump did not respond and simply shook his head. Other reporters asked as well. Shortly after, the White House banned four journalists from covering Trump's dinner with Kim Jong-un in Hanoi in what the Washington Post called, quote, an extraordinary act of retaliation. Press Secretary Sanders said reporters from the Associated Press, Bloomberg News, the Los Angeles Times, and Reuters were excluded over, quote, sensitivities over shattered questions in the previous sprays. Sanders has tried to exclude all reporters and only allow photographers and television crew, but reversed after loud pushback, allowing just one reporter from Robert Murdoch-owned Wall Street Journal to attend. On Wednesday, from his hotel room in Hanoi at roughly 4 p.m. his time, 4 a.m. our time, Trump attacked Michael Cohen, tweeting, quote, Michael Cohen was one of the many lawyers who represented me, unfortunately. He had other clients also. Trump also tweeted that Cohen, quote, was just disbarred by the state Supreme Court for lying and fraud. He did bad things unrelated to Trump, adding, quote, he is lying in order to reduce his prison time using Crooked's lawyer. Trump also attacked a Democrat. I have now spent more time in Vietnam than Da Nang Dick Blumenthal, the third-rate senator from Connecticut, adding, quote, his war stories of his heroism in Vietnam were a total fraud. So I'm just going to pause there for two observations. First, uh, <laughs> hello, meet irony. Hello. <laughs> Trump attacking Blumenthal about his record in Vietnam 50 years after Trump dodged the draft. Um, but also, I, I just want to go back to Trump and us normalizing the fact that Trump publicly is basically witnessing tampering. It's obstruction of justice. He is attacking Michael Cohen. He's been attacking Michael Cohen's family to his 58 million Twitter followers and um, also in, in reporters' comments. So highly unusual, and hopefully there will be some recourse for that. As Cohen's testimony got underway, it overwhelmed the spectacle of Trump's second summit, which received little media attention. Trump had urged his team to respond to Cohen even before he touched down Tuesday night. On Tuesday in the late evening around 11 p.m., Cohen's opening testimony was made public. Cohen asked the House Oversight Committee to protect his family from Trump's th threats, sharing copies of tweets he found threatening. Cohen said he was ashamed of his failings and called Trump a, quote, racist, con man, and cheat, adding as a candidate he knew Stone was talking with Julian Assange about a WikiLeaks drop of DNC emails. Cohen provided copies of financial statements for 2011 to 2013. Trump gave to banks like Deutsche he also gave a copy, and this was super important, of a check Trump wrote from his personal bank account in April 2017 to reimburse hush money payments made to Stormy Daniels. Why is that date important? That means Trump was writing checks to silence and to impact the outcome of the election while in office. 
Cohen also provided a second check signed by Donald Jr. and Trump Organization Chief Financial Officer Alan Weiselberg, a.k.a. the bookkeeper. The monthly checks were for $35,000 each and were written after, as we just said, Trump took office. Cohen also provided a letter he wrote on Trump's behalf that threatened Trump's high school, colleges, and the college board not to release his grades or SATs ahead of the campaign, because I'm sure his scores and his grades were super good. Cohen also said in his opening statement that individual one is Trump and that he ran for president to promote his brand, but did not think he would win, saying Trump called the campaign the, quote, greatest infomercial in political history. Cohen said as Trump arrived in Vietnam 50 years later, he helped him cover up his service record. He also saw Donald Jr., who Trump said had the worst judgment, whisper, the meeting is all set just before June 9th. On Wednesday, with the country watching the public hearings, Cohen said he was willing to tell all now out of fear that if Trump were to lose the 2020 election, quote, there will never be a peaceful transition of power. I'm going to say that again. On Wednesday, with a country watching the public hearings, Cohen said that he was willing to tell all now out of fear that if Trump were to lose the 2020 election, quote, there will never be a peaceful transition of power. Republicans on the committee spent the day attacking and trying to discredit Cohen as a liar and a grifter, seeking to cash in on a movie or book deal. Representative Paul Gosser, in one of the more memorable moments of the hearing, scolded Cohen, saying, liar, liar, pants on fire. The Republicans, just by way, really didn't land that many punches on on, um, Cohen. They kept shifting back to give the mic and their time to Meadow, who seemed totally ineffectual. In terms of what Cohen said, he testified that Trump knew in advance that WikiLeaks planned to release emails damaging to Hillary Clinton, saying he overheard a July 2016 call from Stone saying the group would publish a, quote, massive dump of emails within days. Cohen said he briefed Trump on Trump Tower Moscow's progress and also gave updates to Donald Jr. and Ivanka. He also talked to former campaign manager Corey Lewandowski about possible business travel to Russia. Cohen also said Jay Sekulow and other members of Trump's legal team made, quote, several changes to his false statement to Congress, including changing the length of time the project stayed and remained alive. Cohen also said he did not travel to Prague. He had no knowledge of the salacious tape mentioned in the Steele dossier, a.k.a. the pee-pee tape. And he lamented lying to First Lady Melania Trump to cover Trump's affairs with other women. As Representative Mark Meadows defended Trump as not being racist, Lynn Patton, a political appointee at HUD, who is a black woman, stood behind him. The GOP members on the committee were all white just like the Kavanaugh hearings when they wheeled in the woman to question uh, (laughs) the woman witness. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. They are all white. Representative Rashida Tlaib called it, quote, insensitive and possibly racist to use a black woman as a prop. Patton was one of the few and most prominent black American officials in the Trump regime. I want to also just quote, because this is just like Pelosi's statement that I cited earlier in terms of how this is not a normal time and how our democracy is at risk. I want to just quote Representative Cummings, who chairs the committee, his closing remarks. He said, quote, when we're dancing with angels, the question will be asked. In 2019, what did we do to make sure we kept our democracy intact? Did we stand on the sidelines and say nothing? Come on now, we can do more than one thing. And we have to get back to normal. And I just want to add a big amen. During the testimony, Roger Stone, remember him, (laughs) wrote a text message to BuzzFeed News saying, quote, Mr. Cohen's statement is not true. A spokesman for the special counsel declined to comment on whether Stone had violated his gag order. On Wednesday, Fordham University confirmed Cohen had sent the school a letter 
in May 2015, threatening legal action if Trump's academic records became public. The school also received a phone call from a campaign staffer. Again, I'm sure they were really good records, and that's why Trump didn't want them released. On Thursday, Representative Cummings told reporters his panel will look to interview several people that Cohen mentioned in his testimony, including Donald Jr., Ivanka, and the bookkeeper, Alan Wazelberg. Other names mentioned by Cohen in his testimony included Trump's longtime assistant, Rona Graff, Roger Stone, Corey Lewandowski, Jay Sekulow, Rudy Giuliani, and several others who worked at the Trump Organization. On Thursday, Cohen gave his third day of testimony for seven and a half hours before the House Intelligence Committee behind closed doors. Committee Chair Schiff said Cohen will return to testify on March 6. Representative Schiff also said the committee plans to make Cohen's testimony public at some point, and that Felix Satter, who Cohen said worked with him at the Trump Tower meeting during his testimony. And now we're going around the globe for what was happening with Trump and the royal family, as I like to call them, as Cohen was giving his testimony. On Wednesday, a White House statement revealed Jared Kushner met with King Mohammed bin Salman and Crown Prince MBS in Saudi Arabia on Tuesday. That was strange because we didn't know about that. To discuss a Mideast peace plan and, quote, economic investment. The White House readout did not specify if the three discussed the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. It was unclear what, quote, economic investment referred to. Was that like refinancing the rest of Jared's properties? Ah. <laughs> uh. The White House also said Kushner met with Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan on Wednesday, also purportedly to push a Mideast East peace plan. So that was interesting because then on Thursday, the New York Times reported that Trump had ordered former Chief of Staff John Kelly to give Kushner top security clearance last May. Remember, it was unclear whether he would get it or not despite concerns from intelligence officials and White House counsel Don McGahn. Kelly was so troubled at the time, he wrote a contemporaneous internal memo about how he had been, quote, ordered by Trump. McGahn also wrote an internal memo detailing the concerns that he had raised about Kushner. In January, Trump had said he had no role in Kushner's security clearance. Last May, Kushner's attorney, Abby Lowell, had claimed... Kushner went through the standard process for clearance, as did Ivanka three months ago. Oh my goodness, they were lying. Can you believe it? Ivanka and Trump were lying. That's the first time. Oh. The full scope of intelligence concerns was not clear. The Kushner family's business has ties to foreign government and investors in, and Kushner had unreported contacts with, countries included, including Israel, the UAE, and Russia. And now the cleanup. A spokesperson for Lowell told the Times, quote, in 2018, White House and Security Council officials affirmed that Mr. Kushner's security clearance was handled in the regular process with no pressure from anyone. That was conveyed to the media at the time in news stories, if accurate, do not change what was affirmed at the time. On Thursday, Representative Cummings said his committee had launched an investigation into Kushner's security clearance process and threatened to subpoena if the White House continues to not cooperate. On Friday, in a letter, Representative Cummings wrote on the request for information on Kushner's security clearance, quote, I am now writing a final time to request your voluntary cooperation with this investigation. On Friday, a spokesperson for Abby Lowell issued a new statement. There you go, because the first one was so good, saying, quote, Mr. Lowell was not aware of nor told of any request for or action by the president to be involved in the security clearance process. Again, officials affirmed at the time that the regular process occurred without any pressure. So Abby Lowell has found himself in a bit of hot water here. On Thursday, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was indicted on corruption charges following a two-year investigation. Netanyahu faces one count of bribery and three counts of breach of trust. 
In a televised statement, Netanyahu dismissed the charges as a political-motivated, quote, witch hunt. Ooh, I wonder where he got that one from. Adding there is nothing to these allegations. On Thursday, Trump defended Kim Jong-un over the death of American college student Otto Wambier, saying, quote, he tells me he didn't know about it until after the fact, and, quote, I take him at his word. Wambier's family, who said their son was brutally tortured, won a $501 million judgment against North Korea in December. In defending him, Trump said Kim, quote, feels very badly about it. So Trump has defended Kim, the Saudi crown prince, MBS, over Jamal Khashoggi's death. He sides with Putin when Putin says, we didn't hack your election over U.S. intelligence. Notice a pattern here of cozying up to dictators and not believing or defending Americans? I do too. Trump drew bipartisan criticism, which is rare, as we know, for his remarks. In the past, Trump, again, has sided with Putin and the Crown Prince MBS. On Thursday, Trump abruptly canceled a working lunch in Hanoi amid a standoff over North Korea demanding, according to him, the U.S. remove all economic sanctions without North Korea completely ending its nuclear program. Trump told reporters, sometimes you have to walk, adding, this wasn't a walk away, like you get up and walk out. No, this was a very friendly, we shook hands. There's a warmth that we have, and I hope that stays. This is so weird. He's talking about Kim Jong-un. Sounds like it's a scorned lover. Trump also told reporters Cohen's testimony was, quote, shameful and false, and that, quote, having a fake hearing like that and having it in the middle of this very important summit is really a terrible thing. Trump carved out one area that he agreed with on Cohen. Quote, he lied a lot, but it was also interesting because he did not lie about one thing. He said no collusion, no collusion with a Russian hoax, adding of that part, quote, I was actually impressed. Trump left Hanoi empty-handed despite the White House having scheduled a joint signing ceremony where Trump and Kim were meant to triumphantly conclude their two-day summit. On Friday, in a rare news conference in the middle of the night, North Korea's foreign minister, Ri Yong-ho, disputed Trump's account of why the summit ended, saying Kim demanded only partial sanctions relief. Ri also told reporters North Korea had offered to put a permanent halt on the country's nuclear and intercontinental ballistic missile tests in writing, adding Trump wasted an opportunity that may not come again. Later, a State Department senior official then clarified the U.S. position, saying that North Koreans basically asked for the lifting of all sanctions, basically. The officials acknowledged the North's demand was for lifting the United Nations Security Council's sanctions imposed in 2016 only, not sanctions imposed earlier when the North conducted its first nuclear test. Later, North Korea's state-run media took a softer tone than Re, not mentioning Trump's decision to walk away without any agreements and indicating the North was looking ahead to more talks. So it's unclear what actually happened here and why Trump walked out, but just a theory I have, we'll see as the media does their reporting if it's true. I think he was distracted by Cohen and he couldn't focus. The man can barely focus to begin with. I think he just wanted to get out of there and come back to the United States so he could start tweeting. And that's what he did on Friday in a series of five morning tweets. Trump attacked Cohen over his testimony, tweeting, quote, Wow, just revealed that Michael Cohen wrote a, quote, love letter to Trump manuscript for a new book that he was pushing. Trump also tweeted, quote, Your heads will spin when you see the lies, misrepresentations, and contradictions against his Thursday testimony, adding, quote, Like a different person, he is totally discredited. Trump also tweeted, quote, Cohen's book manuscript shows that he committed perjury on a scale not seen before. What does Clinton's lawyer, Lanny Davis, say about this one? Is he being paid by crooked Hillary? Trump also tweeted, oh, I see. Now that the two-year Russian collusion case has fallen apart, they say, gee, I have an idea. Let's look at Trump's finances and every deal he has done and follow discredited Cohen. Trump also tweeted, quote, no way, it's time to stop this corrupt and illegally bought, brought witch hunt, 
adding, quote, time to start looking at the other side. And Republicans have been abused long enough, must end now. A new Harris Hill poll revealed that 37% of respondents found Michael Cohen credible, while 25% did not, and 39% had not formed an opinion. Cohen's credibility was split along party lines, with 58% of Democrats finding him credible, 11% do not, while just 15% of Republicans found him credible, 40% do not, which again is the importance of more public hearings, because we've only had one person come out publicly since, again, Comey, and that man is going to jail for lying to Congress. So it's important that we bring back these other witnesses that are getting mentioned by chairs of House committees. On Friday, Warmbier's parents issued a statement saying, quote, Kim Jong-un and his evil regime are responsible for the death of our son, Otto, adding no excuses or lavish praise can change that. On Friday, Trump thought to clarify his statements, also known as what you just heard me say on the TV screen was not really me, like he's done every other time. Uh, on his on Warmbier's death, tweeting, quote, I never like to be misrepresented misrepresented, and saying, quote, of course I hold North Korea responsible. That is not what Trump said Thursday. Trump also tweeted, quote, remember, I got Otto out with three others. The previous administration did nothing, adding Otto Wambier will, will not have died in vain, and I love Otto and think of him often. I'm sure you do. On Wednesday, the New York Times reported that Attorney General for the District of Columbia subpoenaed Trump's inaugural committee. That's now the third government body to do so after New York and New Jersey. The subpoena sought documents related to payments to the Trump Hotel DC and the Trump Organization, including any communications related to the pricing of venue rentals. The subpoena also named Fairman Hotel and Accor Hotels, which was paid $1.56 million for a block of rooms, and also requested information on the role of Ivanka, Donald Jr., and Eric, what they played in that committee. It's the first time we've seen Eric that I can remember in a good long while. On Thursday, House Financial Services Committee Chair Maxine Waters said she was given a lead that might result in her opening an investigation into the Trump Foundation. Cohen mentioned the foundation in his testimony. Representative Waters also said Deutsche Bank is, quote, now being cooperative, adding they had not been and they have offered to cooperate and my staff have just started to work with them to get documents. I also saw Representative Waters say on Friday that she understands the importance of, as we said in the beginning of the podcast, the fact that No other banks would lend to Trump other than Deutsche Bank, and the fact that Deutsche Bank also has been charged with laundering money for Russia. So strange coincidences, I'm sure. On Thursday, Republican senators urged Trump not to move forward with his national emergency declaration, saying there is support for a resolution to disprove to pass in the Senate. The House has already passed a resolution to block Trump's emergency declaration. We talked about that. This would necessitate Trump invoking his veto power for the first time. There is not enough support to override his veto, however. On Friday, Mueller's team told Federal District Amy Berman Jackson in a new filing that it expects its case against Stone to take five to eight days in court. And then on Friday evening, because there's never a boring Friday evening in our lives anymore, in the late evening, Judge Berman Jackson ordered Stone's attorney to explain why they did not tell her about the imminent publication of a book that would violate violate his eight-day-old gag order. In the order, the judge asked the attorneys why they had not told the court about the book in court filings or during the February 21 hearing, saying Stone should not be talking about this and should not be talking about this court or the special prosecutor. On Friday, the day of the March 1 deadline for Trump to dramatically increase tariffs on China, Trump tweeted, quote, I have asked China to immediately remove all tariffs on U.S. agricultural products. Trump also tweeted, quote, I did not increase their second tranche of tariffs to 25% on March 1st, adding this is very important for our great farmers. 
American farmers, as we've been talking about, have been suffering under Trump's trade war. He's invoked a Depression-era rule to be able to pay them so far $7.7 billion and basically you know, reimbursing them for what he's cost them from his trade wars. It's clear here he had no plan. March 1st came and went, and he just sent a random tweet to explain why he hadn't imposed his own tariffs. Trump made the request, quote, based on the facts that we are moving along nicely with trade discussions with China for his reason. On Friday, the Washington Post ran a story titled, In America, Talk Turns to Something Unspoken for 150 Years, Civil War, citing many of the examples chronicled in our weekly list. We talked about two at the open here. And I say this as we segue into the Conservative Political Action Conference, also known as CPAC, that started this week. I'm not going to go into all the things that happened and all the speeches, but I want to just give like an overview of why this year is different and not normal. This year focused on the threat of socialism, but the conference used to be a forum for conservative debate and has reportedly evolved into a pro-Trump event. We debated using this picture for this week, but thought Cohen's testimony was more important. But um, you can find it if you click on item number 165 in the weekly list. A 16-foot high painting of Trump's face in front of an American flag titled Unafraid and Unashamed by artist Julian Raven hung in the CPAC exhibition hall. And it's haunting. I I encourage you to go on the weekly list again, number 165, and click and look at this. It's haunting. The painting was first unveiled at a Trump rally in 2015. The CPAC speaker roster was full of Trump loyalists who previously were considered on the fringe of the Republican Party, like YouTube duo Diamond and Silk and activist provocateur James O'Keefe of Veritas fame. They are now speaking at the CPAC. Conservative radio host Eric Erickson said CPAC was, quote, filled with speakers, grifters, and performance artists. While never Trump conservative, Bill Kristol tweeted, some future, some party. And folks, we are basically seeing Trump has subsumed the Republican Party. We've talked about that in many episodes, but it was very clear from looking at the CPAC and how it played out. On Friday, Matt Schlapp, who is chairman of CPAC, defended nationalism in an interview with Fox News saying there's nothing wrong with nationalism while defending a call for stronger borders. So that's where we are, folks. Despite his rough week, Trump arrived to CPAC, returning from Vietnam, uh, on Saturday to a hero's welcome to a sea of red MAGA hats, chants of Trump, 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 and four more years. As Trump walked on stage, he hugged an American flag as God Bless America played over the speakers. As he started to speak, chants of lock her up from attendees erupted. Trump's meandering off-script speech lasted over two hours, his longest. He attacked Mueller, Democrats, socialism, climate change, and a supposed caravan at the southern border full of, quote, stone-cold killers. Trump told the crowd he was joking when he asked Russia to hack Hillary's emails and criticized the fake news for taking him seriously saying, quote, so everyone is having a good time. I'm laughing. We're all having fun. He's done this before, folks. When Trump, remember, he famously said during the campaign, right before the emails were leaked, Putin, you know, Russia, can you get Hillary's emails? And now he's saying, oh, I was just joking. He always says that. I was just joking. Trump also said of the media, quote, these people are sick, and I'm telling you, they know the game and they play it dirty, dirtier than anyone has ever played the game. Trump mocked former Attorney General Jeff Sessions for accusing himself using a Southern accent, saying, and the Attorney General says, I'm going to recuse myself as the crowd booed. Trump invited conservative activist Hayden Williams, 26, on stage and said he will sign an executive order very soon requiring colleges and universities to support free speech if they want to receive federal grants. On Saturday, Trump tweeted, We talked about this at the open about his golf course and his relationship with the UK. Nothing wrong there. Uh, And just finally, Trump also tweeted on Saturday a tweet promoting his 2020 campaign merchandise 
Get your official campaign merchandise. That's being tweeted by the head of the U.S. Hallelujah. Here we are, folks. So that's the end of week 120. Thank you for sticking with us um, for another week of not normal. Have a great week, and we'll see you next week. Keep the faith.